Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Mission Daily. Today's show embraces the journey of Mike Stemple, a proud U.S. veteran and an expert at ideation, innovation, and startups. Mike has built 20 technology companies that have grown into a combined worth of $100-plus million. And on this episode, he discusses life lessons he carries with him today, entrepreneurial best practices, and why now, more than ever, U.S. veterans have an opportunity to help out their civilians in a new way. Enjoy. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you uh, booking me up for this. Definitely. Where are you calling in from? I'm in Oceanside, California, due north of San Diego, halfway between here and LA, just south of Camp Pendleton. Nice. It's a good place to be holed up at. Uh, sunny out there? Or what's, the, what's the weather like? Uh, it's, it's San Diego. It's always gorgeous. Just about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I live a uh, half block off the water with a view. and uh, It's just absolutely a, a tremendous, really awesome place to live. It sounds like it. And Mike, we were talking a little bit about, uh, you know, our lives and our journeys before we got on air here. And uh, you're a U.S. Army uh, veteran as well, right? I am. I was a combat medic uh, back when it was a 91 Alpha and was served in 88 to 90, right before. Actually, my last day in the military was the first day of the first Cold War. Oh, wow. And so the transition out, uh, what was that like? It was difficult at the time. Um, you think you leave the, the army, but it never quite leaves you. Um, so I think those first few years leaving the military were the hardest. Um, and then you go into this middle period where you don't really like your, your time in the military. You kind of look back on it with almost a negative experience viewpoint. And I think the older you get, and I just turned 50, and uh, the older you get, things you learned, more importantly, the experiences you had in the military become critically important to you. I look back at my time and it's probably the, the, the moments of my life that I have some of the most fondest memories, the brotherhood and sisterhood that we have in the military that can't be replicated uh, in the civilian world. No matter how hard you try, I'm just very grateful uh, for the opportunity I had. Uh, the more I think about it, the more I appreciate my, my service. Yeah, uh, same here. And, you know, being in Iraq and Egypt and getting to do security for Obama's first inauguration, those are experiences when, you know, you're going through them, you have this one lens and, and view of uh, what's going on, but it definitely, uh, they're memories that stay with you for better or worse. And I completely agree, like the older you get, uh, the more those memories kind of tend to shape your worldview for the better, uh, at least in my case. Yeah. I mean, the, the big moment for me was uh, Benghazi. And yeah. when that happened, an event like that, that you just feel so helpless, knowing that you have someone who's part of the, the fraternity you, are, you belong to uh, in harm's way. That I've talked about this before with people that if in some alternate reality, if someone had picked up the phone and called me and said, you need to be on a plane to go save one of your, your brother's lives, um, I would have stopped reality and done that. For sure. That's just an amazingly awesome experience that civilians, unless you've experienced it, it's really hard to understand what that's like to, to even 
you know, 40 some years, you know, 30 some years later that you're willing to step out of your comfort zone and go back into the suck. It's just, it's just an amazing experience. It will never, I'm just so glad I was fortunate to have, to have it. It really is uh, interesting. I think what's fascinating is, you know, you mentioned that it's a, an experience that can't be replicated in the civilian world. However, you know, with what we're going through now, I see signs that people are going to want to start replicating. People are starting to come alive a bit more. I don't know if you notice it, but I certainly do that people are taking notice about, you know, existential threats and they're getting involved in their communities, maybe not, you know, at a socially distanced length, but they are smiling when they see each other, you know, they're having fun with social distancing. Um, we're starting to come together. And uh, I don't know what your take on it is uh, or what you're seeing out there. The difference between like 9-11 and now uh, is I think 9-11 happened to our country, but not to us as individuals. And we had an enemy and that enemy was describable and it was something that we could fight and the might of our military could be put into action. And this class of warriors that we belong to was able to be to go on behalf of a country, uh, rightly or wrongly. But at the time, we thought that there was an imminent danger and we had to do something. With this black swan event, this COVID-19, the enemy is each other. Um, we can make each other sick. And it's impossible to fight. And it's difficult to grasp. And so what I see people doing with social isolation and they're scared, but at the same time, I see this amazingly awesome experiment playing out across the world where it's a universal enemy. It's a, it doesn't care about race or country or border. It is everywhere. We're all having to deal with it. It's pulling people back into family units and they're rediscovering that. And they're also losing their, their freedoms. Just like anyone who served, we all, if, if I would have known when I was 18 that I would have to give up all of those freedoms to live in an environment where they can go through all my stuff anytime they wanted to control my access to things, control my time and place at a minute level, um, which is happening now to the rest of the civilian world. And they're starting to understand, I think, a little bit more what it's like to serve. So I think that's a, a wondrous thing and silver not a wonder thing. It's a silver lining, I think, to what we're even the we, the people who've served, have kind of experienced and kind of, I think, really well prepared for this type of stuff. That the civilian world is getting a taste of what it's like to serve. And it heartens me that so many people are stepping up to be heroes. There will always be the takers, you know, the hoarders and there's all these awful people who try to take advantage of crisis. More importantly, I'm seeing people with good hearts and good intentions trying to do their little piece uh, to make the suck not suck so much. My background's in psychology, so I, I do a major in uh, microbiology and psychology. So I think about the psychology of this. I think once coming out of this crisis, I see a huge, just huge uptick in PTSD in the civilian population. Same. And at the same time, though, it's connected us at a psychological and biological level, right? Everyone, thanks to digital media, has been presented with this. And you know, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt that the media is pushing down everyone's throats uh, 
everybody's consuming it. Uh, at least a lot of people are. And, you know, you mentioned the PTSD thing. I think that that is uh, an astute observation because we're going to have a whole host of people that, you know, PTSD is something like speaking from experience here, you don't necessarily know you have it. It's quite possible to be high functioning for a long time before you, you know, come face to face with not only have you had it, but you've had it for a long time. So I think that it's going to be interesting to see how quickly people are able to, you know, are they going to start healing processes? Are they going to reconnect? What is that uptick going to look like? Any ideas there? It's going to manifest itself in some very destructive patterns. I think people are going to become hyper germophobes. So they're not going to touch things. They're not going to go to movie theaters. They're just not going to be like to eat at restaurants. Everyone's going to freak out when someone's around them coughing. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine who has young children, and I was just like, whatever you do, don't become a, such a germaphobe that your kids don't develop a natural biome. Let them play in the dirt. Um, don't use, don't overdo it with soap. Yeah. They have to develop a biome that protects them. So my concern is that, that we're just going to see obsessive compulsive behaviors around hand washing and sanitizing. We'll see isolating behaviors around social interactions with people because your fear will block you from being able to socialize with other people effectively. How do you step into the new normal? So we're all in a kind of a wartime footing as a society. Uh, and then we're going to step out of this into something new. And I don't quite know what that's going to look like. No one does. Is work from home going to be common? And if that happens, what does that look like um, as far as isolating behaviors and controlling your environment? And your, how clean is it? How clean is uh, What am I touching? I mean, there's just all these things I think are going to develop. And if, if they're not addressed early on, they become psychosis. Right. And I, I think it's just really scary to think about average people who are highly functioning before this go through an event like this and start to suffer needlessly um, because the profit of fear, how much people make money off of fear. And, but what's nice is you and me and everyone else who have gone through these type of uh, situations before these high stress, um, just really weird environments that we developed um, some post-traumatic issues. So much research has been poured into that space. Um, and a lot of really good therapies are coming out of it. I sit on the board of a group called CPAWS, which is uh, canines providing assistance to wounded warriors and, and just how dogs play a role in PTSD. Um, and then there's all the other programs that are being developed. I don't think it's by chance. I just saw this on the news uh, yesterday that all the uh, dog pounds, all the uh, rescues across the country are emptying out because people are isolated and they're adopting dogs. And I think that's awesome. But I also see the downside of that is when, they, when this is over, are all those dogs going to go back? Are they going to be abandoned? Or um, are people going to give up on the, the comfort they got from the dog because they think they're going to be able to deal with reality? Sure. Yeah, I think it's... Um... A rupture in the plane of the uh, the normal yeah American psychology is, is happening uh, at at large, and uh, it's a painful thing, but it's something that is uh, was necessary. I think we think we're quite stagnant in a lot of our uh, cultural progress, let's call it. And um, some people would even argue like technological progress 
Um, so, you know, you mentioned the uh, Black Swan earlier. I'm, I'm guessing you're maybe a Nassim Taleb fan. But uh, so, yeah, let's talk a little bit more about um, what you're seeing out there with the work you're doing at the front lines of uh, technology and business. Um, what's, uh, yeah, what's the future looking like? My position now after my entrepreneurship career is I'm, I'm a corporate entrepreneur in residence. So big companies um, bring me in to help their usually innovation teams think and act more entrepreneurial. Uh, so before this, there were these black swan events that would happen with, uh, for a company like, um, I'll pick PillPack. So a startup that went through Techstars, so a technology incubator um, in 2013, and then sold to Amazon five years later for a billion dollars and completely upended the um, pharmacy market. And it wasn't just that PillPack was able to create value worth a billion dollars. The day that was announced that Amazon acquired it, the, the pharmacies like CVS um, and others, Walgreens, all suffered $3 billion of market loss. So PillPack really was a $4 billion idea. That's a black swan event if you're in the pharmacy industry. And so it's highly disruptive to how you do business. So companies bring me in to help predict that and, and help their teams take the best of entrepreneurship, speed of market, no politics, a lot of belief systems, you know, thinking and acting entrepreneurially, and reconvert to their teams into something a little more agile, a little more nimble. Uh, to be able to respond to these type of things and, uh, and not just respond, but hopefully be the black swan event themselves. So create it internally and disrupt the rest of their competitors. If you look at the skills that are required today, they're all entrepreneurship skills. So you see guys like um, Elon Musk become a hero. He just says, screw it. We're just going to make it as many ventilators as we can. We're just going to go do it. And then I hear about all these other companies like Ford and GM and everybody else trying to figure it out. And they're going through their typical corporate processes. Well, they don't work. They don't work when a black swan event happens. And so I'm seeing a lot more interest and I'm tracking interest by how many people are looking at my LinkedIn profile. And it's going up and up and up and up and up. And so I think what we're going to see post-event, uh, post-COVID-19, is larger companies come to the realization that I think was predicted ahead of time that they need to start thinking, acting more entrepreneurially if they want to stay competitive. But the world needs technology that is released quicker, faster, and cheaper. And can we do it? I think we can. I mean, I'm seeing that unfold right now. I'm focusing um, for my clients, especially is in a post COVID 19 world. What are the opportunities that this event has created? Um, and it's vast. We're going to see thousands of well-known brands disappear. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I feel awful for the people who are attached, and the people losing their job, but a lot of them were highly inefficient companies uh, with outdated business models that were bad to society as a whole. And now we have a chance to rebuild with a grander vision, with more sustainability across all aspects, environment, people, 
um, resources, technologies. I mean, we can just build it correctly this, with this do-over we're being given. And I'm highly bullish on the future. There's so many macro uh, events too, whether it's um, the stimulus or a lot of the capital that has been on the sidelines for such a long time, it's going to be looking to get reinvested. And it's, uh, it might not happen overnight, not happen all at once. Um, but between that and the huge inventory of uh, real estate that's going to be open again at bargain basement prices, uh, it creates this really interesting phenomena where um, who knows what the future of cities look like because it's going to be uh, it's going to be determined over the next couple of years. So pretty exciting time for anybody that's uh, I think brave enough to and well educated enough to jump back into it. Yeah, I ran a thought leadership uh, thing just on real estate. So it's funny you bring that up. Um, and what does a post-COVID-19 world look like? And I led the, the thought leadership around just if everyone's working, not everyone, but if people are, are more accepting of working at home, which I think they're going to be. Um, if I own, I mean, I've owned numerous businesses in my career. Do I want to have all my employees in one building where it takes one person to bring down my home company if they're infected with something in the future? No, I'd rather have them distributed. In fact, I'd rather have them geographically distributed if, if at sure. all possible, because at least the business stays in business. And so what does that mean then? And I'll just give you one example. If people are working from home and it becomes the standard, which I think it's going to be, uh, people can live wherever they want. And so if you can live wherever you want and you don't have to worry about a commute, um, where are people going to live? So the trend has been closer and closer to cities. Now I think the opposite's going to happen. It's going to be back to the burbs. So it's going to be the 80s all over, the 70s and 80s, where people are moving away and forming these enclaves um, around their lifestyle. So I used to live in, in Colorado, so you'll see a lot more people move closer to the mountains. Um, that real estate's going to do well. If anyone's looking to, for opportunities, play these thought exercises out to, their, to the nth degree about the obvious thing that people I see right now, like around homeworking is like all the stuff that, so with a psychology background, I think of the psychology of what that's going to look like. Um, and there's just, it's, it's a totally different viewpoint for most workers. Um, just the psychology of working from home is different. It's, it's hard. You socialize different. You interact different. Um, you're alone a lot more. So what does that mean? So going back to our PTSD kind of talks, I, I think this is the time for if you're a veteran and you've suffered through PTSD and you've become kind of an expert at it because you've gone through it, now's the time to get your counseling degree and provide it to businesses to be able to help their employees deal with post-COVID-19. Um, this is the time for us as veterans to step back into the civilian world and take care of them again. Um, because right. we, what we went through uh, over the last 30 years, the, the damages that we've suffered and are getting through can directly impact the lives of people this fall and next year and the year after. Completely. And this is something that where outside observers have to take the first step say the first thing, it might be awkward, uncomfortable, you might get somebody pissed off or offended, but it doesn't matter, right? Because for those of us that have been through it or have lost friends to it, 
you don't get a second chance. So no, and, speak up and speak often. Yeah. And the worst thing you do is a good friend of yours might be mad at you. Yeah. And I'm able to pick them out. I've, I mean, I've gotten really astute of being able to pick people out who I think are showing the signs. Their civilian friends don't recognize it. I do. What I'm doing now is like scheduling weekly calls with people. As we're going through this, I got the time. Just once you get, let's just check in with each other every week. And you tell me all your problems. I'm going to brainstorm my ass off. That's what I'm doing with a group of people that I think are depressed. Um, and then I lead in and I'm the first one to talk about my personal experience. I'm not scared of it anymore. I'm not scared that I wanted to die five years ago. I'm not scared that I got as close as you can basically get to wanting to off yourself. And what was going on? And I'm very open and transparent about it. And in my role, people freak out about that. Like, Mike, you know, you're at the top of your career and you've done so much and you're exposing such a strong weakness. And I just kind of laugh. I was like, are you kidding me? Me talking about having wanted to kill myself in the past. You think that's a weakness? That's the ultimate strength is being able to. It's called honesty. Yeah, it's called, yeah. If you've lived long enough or if you've faced enough adversity, you will stare into the abyss and see the, yeah. So. Yeah. And for people to say, they're, they, well, people could use that against you. And I was like, how? I was going to kill myself. What else can people try to do to me? I mean, really? Yeah. Say bad things about me? Act like they're scared? Act like I'm weak? I'm not weak. I survived. Um, I had, a, I mean, I think it takes a lot of courage to step into the thought that I'm going to end my life. And then what we do, we, as veterans, is we help each other. We talk about it. We go to groups and communicate with one another. Um, I see just a, an epidemic. I mean, the epidemic of COVID-19 is bad. I think the suicide rate is going to skyrocket with people losing their jobs and all this isolation that people have been experiencing, all the depression and the economy and just the world's coming to an end. No, it's not. It's beautiful outside today. It and it's going to be beautiful next week. And it's going to be beautiful the week after. And these things that we've learned as veterans that of experiencing the, the horribleness of life, well, now the civilian world is experiencing it as well. And we can be the example. We can be the role models. We can be, we can help people um, through this. And I think that's, that's an amazing, awesome thing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's, I think, a role that anyone that has a story to share and experience in those areas, now's the time. And uh, yeah, now's the time for sure to get that message out there because there are so many people that are going to be hurting that aren't going to be aware of it for years to come. And it's something that to really spark this recovery, because quite honestly, I think it's going to be not just a recovery. It's going to be the start of a golden age. Like there are so many different conversations happening right now that I think have been long overdue. And I think if we can get Americans and humanity motivated towards fighting existential risks instead of interspecies war, I mean, we're going to be well on our way, I think, as a species and as a a collective um, to solving these problems, right? Like for, yeah. for so long, we've just, we've looked at all these problems and complained about them. And now people are discovering, like, we might have a chance to build a nation state with a solutions oriented culture. 
And yeah. what what a rare opportunity that would be to kind of get, get back to our founding ethos, right? What I'm watching unfold right now um, is this whole Democrat-Republican thing because it's an election year and just the media doing what they do to kind of politicize everything. I'm watching this grand experiment unfold. So I'm looking at it through a different Oculus. It's a forced experiment. So we might as well find the silver lining. Things that liberals wanted versus what conservatives wanted. There's this hybrid thing that's being created if people just have the courage to admit it. Like the whole thing yeah. around whether you believe in everyone should have a free college education or everyone should have to pay for a college education. Well, we're doing an amazing, awesome job of like teaching people online right now. So why doesn't the U.S. get off its ass and just create a free college online degree? It would be cheap. It would cost nothing. Anyone that wants to get a, a degree and you're willing to take it 100% online, U.S. government should fund that. Great. It's cheaper than trying to bicker back and forth and negotiate it at in-place universities. So I think these hybrid things we're being forced to experiment on that are working. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very hopeful that we don't fall back into old behaviors, that we can just look beyond it. Same. I think once we get out of the, the, the middle of this COVID-19 craziness, one of the things I hope people come out of is the media is not your friend. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're just not. And I don't care if you're a conservative or a Democrat, either way, the media sucks. Um, and so stop paying them attention and stop feeding that beast and seek out inspirational content. Seek out the inspirational stories. So my company is called Inspire, and it's not by chance. So in all the psychology I've studied, and I spend, I have a book coming out about this, about what is the mindset of entrepreneurs? So what is the mindset that, cre that creates black swans like PillPack that disrupt a whole industry and create massive value, which is such an obvious idea. It's so brilliant. What is the mindset behind that? And a lot of people talk about courage. Well, entrepreneurs are really courageous. They're risk takers. And yeah, that's, 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 that's part of it. Um, so how do we teach courage? We all went through some type of basic training. Um, so how, how did the military teach courage? Um, so I did a ton of research on that and looked at all the studies and all the science. And what's funny is it all goes back to hope. Hope leads to courage. So when people have a hopeful mindset, they're more courageous. So the studies show that hope is like one of these really important things. But in culture over the last 20 years, the saying hope isn't a strategy. And I always laugh about that because hope is a strategy. Hope is projecting into the future that some event is going to have a positive outcome. So I hope people don't die from COVID-19. I hope we come up with a cure. And it doesn't mean that I'm, that's the only strategy, but having a positive mindset really matters. And so I started thinking about how do you give people hope? So if hope leads to courage, so if you have more hope, you become more courageous because you see the world as more positive and the future is more positive. Then the thing that leads to hope is inspiration. So if you go out every day and inspire people, you're helping feed courage. You can't inspire yourself. It's really hard. I can be impressed with myself or proud of myself, but that's not inspiration. So what I learned, and this is, goes back to why I almost killed myself, is I had almost killed myself five years ago at 
the height of my success. I'd built successful businesses. I was respected. I was known. I was doing keynotes. Everyone that looked at me, would no one would have guessed that I was being tormented by myself. And what had happened is I had been hurt so many times, inadvertently. I mean, people weren't just attacking me, but I had just been hurt in a variety of ways. As a medic, I saw things I wish I hadn't seen. That hurt me. Um, I had a head injury. Um, I went to med school. That hurt me. All this stuff happened. And in each one of those times, I put more armor on because that's what I was taught. That's what the military taught me to do. You know, just put more armor on. Go back into the fight. Fight some harder. Fight better. Fight smarter. And what happened is I had put so much armor on that it was impossible for me to be inspired anymore. And so I talk a lot about success is not fulfillment. So I had been super successful, but I was completely unfulfilled. And that's what creates depression. And if you think about fully filled fulfillment, um, the only way you can be fulfilled is to be inspired. And so you have to seek it out. And so that's where I screwed up is I stopped seeking the good in the world. I was fully armored in that no one could inspire me. No one could get through. And so I took off all the armor five years ago, and I devoted my life to finding inspiration. And the more you seek out inspiration, the more you'll find it, and the more you start to inspire other people. So it's this give and take. And then that inspiration leads to hope. And then hope leads to courage. And courage actually replaces fear. In your brain, there's a pathway that branches to courage or to fear. So they've checked us with MRIs and they've been able to figure out that there's this one section. And so courage replaces fear. So you think about you have a certain volume of either courage or fear. And your goal is to take the fear out and add courage to replace it. And that's the secret. That I've figured out, the why entrepreneurs build these big companies, is when you go back to the founders, they're really, really good at being inspired. They really feed off of positive news, and they ignore the negative. That's a delusion, but they really are looking at life through an oculus that the future is going to be outstandingly awesome. And they create hope, not just with themselves, but the people around them. That's why entrepreneurs naturally gravitate to these people. They want to work with them. They want to be around them. They're so hopeful about this amazing future that they're building. And that leads to business success and it creates courage. I love it. I, I sign off on a lot of my email messages with this, this really simple thing is inspiration leads to hope, hope leads to courage, courage replaces fear. And so if you're struggling out there right now, just turn off the TV, stop consuming negative based content, it's not going to kill you. You're not going to die from turning off bad news. And actively seek out inspiration. And when you find it, share it with other people and inspire others. I love it. There's wise words and it's, um, it's a cycle that bears, uh, bears repeating. So thank you so much for sharing it. Yeah, I appreciate it. Mike, final, final thoughts here before we go. Um, are there any, uh, any final thoughts you would like to leave our listeners with? Or I'm curious to know, what was the piece of inspiration you used to, or collection, or what was the starting point of inspiring you to kind of drop the armor and start healing five years ago? So I got lucky. Um, I had a very close friend at the time, uh, that a new friend, and she didn't buy into all the BS about me. 
that I was creating, that I was to expose. And she had the courage that on the day, actually my death, I call it my death day. My wife calls it my hope day now. I had it all planned out. I had ideated. And for me, there was a trigger. And I always thought I should talk about the trigger. It was Robin Williams dying. So when Robin Williams died, that became a fascinating problem for me to try to solve. Is why would someone yeah. like Robin Williams want to do this? This makes no sense. And I ideated on that for hours upon hours and hours. And then I naturally, one day in December, turned to, if Robin Williams, why not me? And then I ideated on that to all the way to its nth degree until where I, I, that sterilizes the concept of suicide. And so on April 1st, um, I got an email from my friend at the time. And she had written a blog post about me because I just helped her create her company. And uh, she talked about me in that blog post the way, in a way that I had never looked at myself. So I had looked at myself awfully, (laughs) um, as damaged, as broken. And she wrote about me in such a beautiful way. And that opened my eyes that there was something, that what I was contemplating doing in that moment was insane. And that I was insane. I was, my, my brain had, had betrayed me. And that there was beauty in this world and the beauty was in me still. I had just locked it away. So she had slipped through the armor. In that moment, I decided I needed to fire everyone in my life uh, out of self-preservation. And what I, I mean by that is I had to fire everyone and rehire them through a different process. So my family and everyone I mentally fired them and I went through a new interviewing process. And the interviewing process is, are you a positive influence in my life? Yes or no? And some people made the grade and most people didn't. And I decided also to be uncomfortably honest with everyone. Because if I was going to die, if I was going to kill myself, then I needed to be uncomfortably honest with everyone about it. And, uh, I lost a lot of people in my life. They just did not like that. They did not like that aspect of me. Along the way, this personal friend that saved my life, we developed feeling for each other, and she's now my wife. So she was there in the darkness, and so she's gotten to see this amazing journey I've gone to all the way to health. And along the way, I have done a lot of work, and it wasn't easy. For example, last year, I decided to go on an antidepressant for the first time in my life, and I was on Lexapro, and I did a six-month cycle, and as I explained to my docs, I'm fascinated with how my brain works, and my brain's been studied quite a bit because of this head injury I had that created an art career. I tell people that that six months I was on Lexapro, I took a vacation for myself, and what I mean by that is that voice that we all have in our head. Right. He stopped saying really wicked, hard things about me. In fact, he just shut up. And um, it allowed me to kind of find peace. And then when coming off Lexapro, um, the voice came back. It's just I had new defenses to be able to deal with it. There are tools. There are ways. There are things. There's a lot of them. Um, I have an emotional sports dog. goes everywhere with me. Um, love him. I highly recommend having something in your life that you're responsible for that's living. And now I'm exploring other things. I mean, it's, am am I cured? No. (laughs) As I tell people, once you check that book off the shelf and read it and it's called suicide, you're never going to put that book back. You you just, you can't know what you know. 
Um, so now I'm just really disciplined about the early warning signs of me putting the armor back on and I have to shed them. Like even doing this, this podcast with you is me shedding armor, me being vulnerable, me opening up, me allowing the opportunities for other people to inspire me. Um, I get my email out to everyone. You see something cool that you think I'll smile at, send it to me. If you want to send me something that's going to make me sad, you'll never get another chance to send it to me. And so I'm just hyper-disciplined around protecting me, my, my mind from me. And I think that's sure. where a lot of us screw up is we just feed it the wrong way. We feed it junk food, which I think most mainstream media is. Couldn't agree more, Mike. I love it. Mike, this has been an inspiring interview and thank you for sharing your story. There are dark nights of the soul that we all go through and there's no stigma around it. The only stigma we want to put on it is if you don't share and if you're yeah. not open and honest and if you don't go for it and help others. So help others and put your foot in your mouth. Try it. It doesn't, it's not going to, not going to matter. You might regret not trying it. So yeah. Mike, this has been an awesome interview. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, of course. Thanks for inviting me. We'll have to have you back on at some point in the future. Yeah, that'd be awesome. All right. Take care. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.